2: This is a
1: crowd
2: podcast.
1: Joe, I'm kind of liking the show that we do. It stimulates my brain, hope it's tickling you too. Up to this point, the reviews are okay. We're rising to the top like a well-made souffle. It's the Joe Mahler Show. Oh, whoa, whoa, it's the Joe Mahler Show.
2: That was a lovely jingle, Tom. Thank you very much. I don't think I uh, give you enough praise. I feel like I should praise you more
1: for your jingles Ah. because you put a lot of effort into them. Thanks,
2: Joe. Thanks for making the
1: effort to say thanks. That is going to spur me on for my next round of jingle making. All right, but just make sure you keep
2: your feet on the ground. All right, okay. Um hello to everyone listening and welcome to our show.
1: I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Yeah, nice to see you, Joe. Now listen, today's a little bit different for us, isn't it? Do you remember back in November and we had that amazing chat with Dr. Jamie Bennett, the prison governor? Yeah, it was an amazing chat. I thought initially
2: it was a little bit frosty. I rubbed him up the wrong way, but he warmed up
1: eventually. He warmed up. But because we're not very good at this, there was a few questions that we would have liked to ask that we didn't ask. And there was some stuff that we couldn't ask him because he's been a prison governor in England. And we wanted to ask specifically about death row. Why do you put that voice on? Because it's death row. I do the voices. Do a death row voice, Joe. Death row.
2: Yeah, it has to be with a little bit more like... Oh, as if you've smoked 40 Mulber Lights...
1: Death Row. That's nice. So my my experience of Death Row is probably like yours. It's the Green Mile. Genuinely,
2: I remember Green Mile being one of the first films that I cried at. The actual first film I cried at was Child's Play, which I watched when I was about six. That was probably more fear crying. And then the next film I cried at was uh, Braveheart, um, when he was like... You know, hung. In fact, that's that's actually quite good. That's a good reference to this episode, you
1: know, because he was hung, drawn and quartered, wasn't he? We, i just just wondering, Joe, if there are people listening to this who haven't seen The Green Mile or Braveheart, and we've just ruined the <laughs> entire <laughs> If you haven't seen Braveheart, Joe isn't talking about a major character, and he's certainly not talking about Mel Gibson. If you haven't seen The Green Mile, um, <laughs> it's about death row. You can guess what happens. our guest today
2: has watched hundreds of executions on death row and her name is michelle lyons
1: michelle welcome
0: thank you thank you for having me
1: thank you so much for coming on and joining me and tom michelle can you explain to us first of all exactly what your job was
0: Yes. So for 11 years, I worked as the spokesperson for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which is basically the Texas prison system. And so in that role, I had to escort the media in to witness every execution, which means then I had to witness every execution. So um That's exactly what I did. I would go, usually I witnessed from the room with the victim's family and would be there then for the inmate's final moments to um, record what was going on in the room and what he was saying and what he was doing. In a few instances, it was a woman, so what she was doing, and then report it back to any reporters who couldn't be there, give interviews and such. And so by the time I left, There were, um, I guess, about 300 executions that I had seen between both that. And then i had actually started out as a journalist covering executions for the local newspaper.
2: Just completely blown my mind. So not only did my introduction not really explain it very well, um, it's actually over 300 people that you've seen die. Well, I mean,
0: your introduction said it was fucking shit. So that that (laughs) probably covered it pretty well. But yeah, you know.
1: So Michelle, how old were you when you saw your your first execution?
0: 22 or 23. And I I think by then I had already at least thought that I was pretty good at shutting it off.
2: Has that ever changed the whole time you've been doing it? Has that changed now?
0: Yes, it definitely changed after I became a mom. The part that was the hardest was that on the day of the execution, I would have to go and see them a few hours before the execution. And that was probably one of the most fucked up parts of the job because they would get transported. The, the death row facility and the unit where the executions actually take place are about 45 miles apart. And so they would arrive at the unit where the executions take place in the early afternoon hours. And it would be my job and the warden and the chaplain, we would go and see him and go over paperwork, you know, okay, this is what you requested as your last meal. These are or who's going to be here, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And my job was to kind of see what his demeanor was and talk to him about the ways he could deliver his last statement. That basically you can you can speak, um, or if you want to write it out, you can do that. But that's when you would really see, you know, if they were nervous or they were scared or in a a very few cases, they were really pissed off or I mean, it was just there's a lot of emotion there. And then the worst part for me was when you're leaving, what do you say to them? You know, because usually when you're leaving someone, you say, "Okay, I'll see you later. I mean, you don't say that to somebody that the next time you see them, they're going to be strapped to a gurney. That's really fucked up to say. So you don't say I'll see you later.
2: Well, 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 sorry to interrupt. What's a gurney?
0: Oh, sorry, the, the table that they're laying on to be executed.
2: It's called a gurney.
0: A gurney. W- mm-hmm. What's a gurney? Execution gurney. Um, It's a hospital term, I think. So basically it's like a hospital bed. It's the flat surface that they lay on for the actual execution.
2: I just wonder why it's called a gurney. I think of gurn, you know, to when you gurn at something. Like-
0: I don't know what that means.
2: Joe will do you a gurn now. Well, I don't really know how to gurn, actually, Tom. How, how do you... Uh, gurn...
0: What the shit is that? <laughs>
2: like, I'll be honest. It's usually a term used for someone who's um, consumed a shit ton of cocaine. Um, <laughs> they end up gurning a little bit when they're doing it. So it, I just wanted to clear huh. up that you weren't.
0: Talking about cocaine. In talking the chamber. about cocaine. No, that might make the process easier, <laughs> but no, no, no gurning in the um, chamber. No.
2: <laughs> I'm guessing you're in favour of the death penalty then.
0: Not entirely, no. The problem was that I saw cases where I would not have given the person the death penalty. And then the other issue that I have is that I don't think the men who are trying to get evidence tested should have to jump through the hoops that they do. You know, especially when it involves like DNA testing. I find it ridiculous that they have to petition the courts, wait three or four years and such. I think regardless if you're for or against the death penalty, you should want to make sure that the person that's being executed committed the crime. I find it utterly fucking ridiculous that you have to, you know, wait that long and and beg the court to have this evidence tested. I, I do not understand the point of that. The other thing is that, you know, in Texas, we have something called the law of parties. And so for anybody who's listening that's not familiar with that, it basically means that if you are present, No matter what your level of involvement is, if you're present when the capital murder is committed, you can be convicted of the capital murder as though you committed it. Yes. So in one case, I saw a man be executed and it was known that he did not commit the crime. The man who did actually commit the murder had made a deal because he turned first. So he did not get executed and was serving a life sentence. And that is not, to me, a true use of the law of parties. And I just, I I have such an issue with that. It's like, if you're going to use that law of parties, it has to be either applied across the board. Either everybody gets it, nobody gets it. You know, that I I don't see how can you execute someone you know didn't commit the crime and then the person you know committed the crime is serving a life sentence. So no, I think there's some issues.
1: So if if I was in a room with Joe and Joe, somewhat out of character, produced a gun and shot someone, I could get done for murder.
0: Well, it's only for capital murder. So in Texas, capital murder is murder in the commission of another felony. So it would be if Joe shot someone and then took their wallet. So if you're in the room when Joe shoots someone and takes their wallet, so he has now robbed them and shot them, you can also get the death penalty for that. So
2: I can't get the death penalty for just shooting someone. I have to rob them.
0: Or if you've kidnapped and and murdered, if you've sexually assaulted.
2: So it has to be more than one crime.
0: Yes. Unless there are a few caveats. So if you kill a child under the age of, I believe it's six, they may have changed that. I can't remember. Um, if you kill a police officer, if um, you kill, there's, there's a few others. If the crime is committed in a prison, there's, there's a few other caveats where it can just be murder. But for the most part, it's in commission of another felony. So kidnapping and murder, robbery and murder, rape and murder. It's, it's not just straight. I walk up and shoot you.
1: So if in that scenario, I basically need Joe to put the wallet back. It's what we're saying. Okay, fine. Yes,
0: yes, yes. As long as, yeah, if he didn't take, like, if he takes one dollar out of that wallet, no, you're fine.
1: I don't understand
2: (laughs) how you've made light of me murdering someone in a room that we both stood in. It would be a shock. But you've managed to do it, Tom, so (laughs) well well played on that. Um, So I didn't really get a definitive answer from that are you in favor of it or not
0: oh anyway so no so my my point in all of that is is that truly I believe it's it's a case-by-case basis because one of the things that I write about um you know in the book is that so I'm I'm not married now but I was in in 2016 and I had a 17 year old stepdaughter who was murdered and um you know did I want that person to get the death penalty absolutely you know and and from that experience and from the experience of, of witnessing so many of those crimes, you know, and, and knowing that the facts were irrefutable and such, I don't have the balls to tell some of these victims that they're wrong for wanting that justice, you know? So I, I really do, for me, it's, it's on a case by case basis. Again, there were cases that I saw that I personally wouldn't have given the person the death penalty, but I do think it's appropriate for some cases. So, I, I, you know, I can't say I'm totally for it. and I'm not totally against it. You know, I think I've been fortunate that, um, for the most part, it hasn't touched me, except for that one horrible case.
2: But it's such a murky water to tread, really, isn't it? Because where do you toe the line?
0: And that's where it started getting so complicated for me. Because when I was young and really, I mean, to be blunt, you don't know shit about life. You know, you're 22. I'm not married. I have no children and stuff. You, It's really easy to be so arrogant about what you think you know, and everything is so black and white, and this is right, and this is wrong. And as you get older, and you meet more people, and you know more things, and then you become a mom, what really started to mess with me is that it was just so sad all the way around. You know, that I'm meeting these men, and some of them I truly believed were sorry for what they did. They admitted they did it. They were sorry. There were a couple that I really believed if they ever got the chance, would never do anything like that again. And, you know, then I'd watch from the victim's room and I would see all the pain that these people had been through because they had this loved one that was taken from them and, you know, never saw it coming, never got to say goodbye. But then through the wall, I would hear the inmates family and you would hear this mother who's wailing because she's watching her son die in front of her. And, you know, so it just started really pulling me apart in every way possible because I couldn't even imagine that, you know, because now I'm a mom and I'm sitting here thinking, the strength it takes for this woman to watch this. And like one of the inmates had told me that he had begged his mom not to come. And she had told him, you know, I was here when you came in this world and I will be here when you leave, you know, and it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I just, it was a lot of stuff like that, you know, and it was pulling me apart. And, you know, and yet I'm still having to go in the room, you know, sometimes week after week, sometimes month after month. And it was just a lot, you know, it, it, it just became a lot.
1: There's a case you talk about in your book, Michelle, and that's a guy called Ricky McGinn. Mm. And it's quite haunting, not just because of who Ricky McGinn is and what he does, but because of what you see his mother doing.
0: Yeah. So with Ricky McGinn, I mean his case was so awful, you know, and and well, there were lots of interesting things about his case, and and basically he was convicted and, and sentenced to die for um, the rape and murder of of his stepdaughter, and it was I mean, there was tons of evidence. He was the only person that George Bush, while governor gave a temporary reprieve to. And that's the only real power that a governor has on his own. Without a recommendation from the Board of Pardons and Paroles, they can elect to give a one-time only temporary reprieve. He did that so that McGinn could get DNA testing. He gets that testing and it comes back and said, mm, no, you did it. And everybody knew it because there was all this other evidence and stuff. So execution goes forward. But what had happened and what tore me up so bad, I was still a reporter at the time. So for that execution, I actually witnessed in the inmates room. And um, his mother was wheeled in and she was wearing this floral dress and she was so elderly and so wrinkled. And they had told me that apparently she had had um, like a stroke or a heart attack not long before that. So she was in this wheelchair. They bring her in. She had on pearls and everything. And um, she asked to be taken right up against the glass so that he could see her. And, you know, pushed herself up out of the chair and, and put her hand up on the window, you know, to make sure that he really could see her. And just that image is burned in my brain and and really sometimes messes with me, you know, just her wrinkled hand and the fact that here, you know, she's had these heart troubles and everything. But she wanted to make absolutely certain that her son could see her, you know, and, and it was stuff like that that just really messed with me.
2: I'm just... Like listening to you <clears throat> talk about the the emotions and um, the feelings of the parents, of the inmate, not of the victim. It's just got me thinking about how would I feel about my kids, even though I 100% knew, I'm sure his mum knew that he was guilty. You know, if my son Jasper was to turn out that way, touch wood he doesn't, how would I feel knowing that he 100% committed some awful crimes there's part of me that would feel like that actually you deserve to die. You deserve to be punished for this. But at the same time, he'll always be my son. He'll always be my flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. And it would, I'd find it really hard to, to forget that. Of course. I always joke with my wife about her nan who loves us so hard, loves the family so hard. And we often joke that if you popped around the house, and he said, all right, Marge, how you doing? And she said, oh, hello, yeah, come in. And you go, oh, I've just killed 100 people, whatever. She'd go, oh, I'll just put the kettle on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because she's always had that sort of feeling of, well, you're my flesh and blood and I know what you've done is wrong, but I can't get away from that. And I, I, I sit there saying that as if to sympathise with the the actual inmate's family. Uh, but yeah. then on the flip side of it, I can't help but think about, hang on a minute, you're forgetting about the anguish and the pain that the victim's family are going through. Did you ever feel that?
0: Absolutely. That
2: sort of guilt for it?
0: Well, and that was, that was part of what was tearing me apart because there were a few times, you know, one of the, the cases that I wrote so much about and I always talk about is a guy named Napoleon Beasley. Because in my mind, and my heart, I was rooting for him to not be executed. And I felt... So guilty for that because he admitted his crime. The crime was horrible, but I didn't want to see him die. What had he done? So Napoleon was 17 at the time that he committed the crime. And just before I get into it, would say that not long after he died, and we're talking within a few months he um or the Supreme court ruled that you could not be executed for a crime committed at the age of 17. Oh. So if he, yeah. And his lawyer like really struggles with that to this day, because his point is if I could have just done something else, he'd still be alive, you know, but it's not his fault in any case. So Napoleon was a great kid from an amazing family. Like was, if I recall, like the student body president, or at least his class president, like quarterback, I mean, just a great kid. But um, he started running with a bad crowd. And they're driving. They're out one night. And they decide that they want to steal a car. They want to steal a Mercedes. So they see an elderly couple driving a Mercedes. And they follow them home. And they pull into the garage. They pull up right behind them. And when the couple gets out, they shoot. And um, they kill the man. Um, so he's laying dead on the garage floor. The woman lays on the floor and plays dead and they steal the car and stuff. They're caught very quickly. So, um, you know, there's a trial and stuff. Well, the thing was, is that this couple, their son was a federal court judge, you know, And, and how would I have felt if here my elderly mom and dad were just driving home after a nice evening? My father is shot and killed in front of my mother. My mother is playing dead on the floor. I mean, like, wouldn't I want him to die? Absolutely. But here, I'm rooting for him not to die just because I truly believed. After I spent so much time getting to know Napoleon because I'd first met him when I was a journalist, he had gotten a number of stays, so I had interviewed him a ton as a reporter. Then I went and met him when I was a spokesperson, and because of, he was so eloquent and so smart, and I just really liked Napoleon. And he was especially the person that I reference when I say, if he had ever gotten out I truly believe he would have gone on to live a productive life, a a good life, and never would have done something like that again. But again, I felt like such a horrible person that I'm rooting for this and this family wants this and they're not wrong for wanting it. I felt horrible.
1: But despite all that, despite that bond you had with him, you had to watch him die.
0: That was the first time that when I was leaving the chamber after seeing them in the afternoon that I almost started crying. Like my eyes got all filled up and I was trying to blink it back because I thought if any of these correctional officers or anybody sees this, they will not respect me anymore.
2: What I'm struggling most with is what's the drinking age of Texas? 21. You can't buy alcohol until you're 21, but you can be put to death for committing a crime at 18 it confuses me as to where the, when are you an adult? When aren't you an adult? Do you know what I mean? It it confuses the, Fuck out of me, to be honest.
0: America, man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. We might have one or two American listeners that I don't want to piss off, so
0: <laughs> I'm American. I can say that. Okay, you know.
2: Yeah, but just to clarify, any- <laughs> you can't
0: agree, or you're gonna piss them off, but I can say it.
2: <laughs> any American listeners, um it was Michelle that said that, not me, just in case you confused our voices.
0: And I'm totally American. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: fine. Um You live in you live in Huntsville.
0: I do. I still live in Huntsville.
2: And how many prisons have you got in Huntsville?
0: There are eight in the area. Do you think that's quite a lot? Yes, but I mean, across the state, there are over 100, you know. But Texas is also huge, you know. Um, The the prison population when I was there was about 150,000, and it's gone down significantly. Um,
2: 150,000 people in prison. What's the population of Texas?
0: Oh, gosh, I have no idea.
2: 29 million? Hang on, 29 million?
0: We're huge. I mean, Houston is like the third or fourth largest city in the nation.
2: 29 million people live in
1: Texas.
0: I would not have guessed that number, but yeah.
1: Sorry, Tom, that's a fuckload of people. <laughs> Let's do a few calculations here, Joe. So there's 29 million people in Texas. Michelle, how many people were in prison at the peak?
0: 150,000.
2: Yeah, I've, so I've listened to numbers here and you told me <laughs> to do that. I'm not sure how we're
1: calculating stuff. It just seems that there's a lot of people in prison in Texas.
2: Yeah, but I would have thought that having the death penalty as a deterrent would mean that you've got lower people committing crimes. Is that not the case?
0: I don't know. You know, people say it's a deterrent. I don't know that that's necessarily the truth in the way that The average amount of time on death row is 10 years. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, it's like smoking. If someone says you're going to die in 10 years from smoking, does that really make anybody not smoke? No. You know, it's the same way. If I'm super pissed off about something or I decide like, or if I'm on drugs and I want more drugs and I'm going to rob somebody, you're going to die in 10 years is not a deterrent.
1: That's such a good point. You know, a good point. It's,
0: it's not. If it were instantaneous, that would probably be a deterrent. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and, I, and I think that's fine. I think that most people who support the death penalty, and especially certainly the victims, it's not about that. It's more about retribution. And again, I don't think I'm in a position to say whether that's right or wrong. You know, the two cases I think about a lot are this because they're on the opposite end. When I say that if I were on a jury, I wouldn't have given somebody the death penalty. I think about a guy named Leonard Rojas because he came home and basically he found his wife and brother in bed together and he shot and killed them both. I probably wouldn't have given him the death penalty. That to me seems like a crime of passion. You walk in, you see your wife and your brother and you snap and you kill them both. You should be punished. I probably wouldn't have given him the death penalty for it. But then, you know, as far as like people, I had not one problem with, there's a guy named Jason Massey. And, He had decided that he was going to be the most amazing serial killer that ever lived. And so he had this notebook where he did all these calculations about like how many people he would have to kill over a certain amount of times that he could surpass like everybody. He wanted to be greater than like, oh, yeah, he wanted to be greater than like John Wayne Gacy and Dahmer and everybody. So he has this amazing notebook and he's making calculations. He was not good at it. So like he went and no, it's a horrible crime. So I shouldn't even like be flip about it because he went and he, he kidnapped, if I recall, it was two kids that were, I think 12 and 13 stepbrother and stepsister. He kidnaps them and does all this horrible stuff and kills them. But he's caught really quickly, so it foils his plans. But what was so awful is that, like, they recover the bodies, but the girl, like, they never recover her head. And so oh, the family gosh. has to, oh, it's horrible. Because, you know, again, so I now have a teen, you know, so it's like, and at the time, you know, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible crime. So they never recover all of her body. Her family has to bury basically partially a young girl's body. Horrible. So we go to the execution and from the gurney, he decides to tell the family what he did with the head. I mean, it's just that's so messed up, you know, and, and I think about a case like that. It's like, no, I didn't have one qualm about watching that execution, did not feel bad about it, did not leave there with any like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, didn't care, you know? And so I think about those two extreme cases and, you know, that's why to me, the death penalty is so complicated. I didn't feel bad at all. I still don't feel bad about that case.
1: Michelle, I think it's unlikely that, that Joe and I will ever see anyone executed unless Mm. Eddie Jones sort of penchant for discipline, um, Mm. grows a little bit. (laughs) When, when you're on death row, how does it happen? Like how does the whole process happen from the point where, you know, it's your day, you you've had your 10 year wait the day that you are going to die. What happens?
0: So that morning you get to visit with your family for four hours. Which is, is something because usually you get to see your family. If you're on your best behavior and you're what's considered a level one inmate, you get to see your family, you know, a very limited amount of time. So having that four-hour visit is amazing. But people on death row never get any kind of contact, physical contact with anyone. So when you're saying your goodbyes for that four hours, you will not hug your mom or dad goodbye. You will do all of this using a phone and through glass. So you'll have those four hours of visits. And then when those visits conclude, they will load you up in a van and that van will take you from the Polunsky unit in Livingston, which is where Death Row is housed, to the Walls unit, which is where the execution takes place. Um, when you get to the Walls unit, They will pull you in this back entrance and you will get out. And that's the last time you will see the outdoors, unless you get to stay. Mostly you will not get to stay. So they bring you into the holding cell area and um, you have to completely strip search and they give you brand new clothes and they take your fingerprints and everything to make sure that they have the right person, which of course they have the right person. And then they put you in the holding cell and that's when the me... And the chaplain and the warden would come and talk to you and just go over your paperwork. You know, this is what will happen with your property. This is who you've asked. We'll pick it up. Um, this is who will be here to to witness your execution. And then I would chime in. These are the reporters that'll be here. And if you want to make your last statement this way, blah, blah, blah. And um, then we leave. And then then in the afternoon, they get to use the phone, which is also something death row inmates never get to do. So they can call anyone in the continental United States all afternoon.
1: What if they're not in? <laughs>
0: <laughs> they can either call back or you're going to feel like such a dick for missing that call. Like, Can you imagine getting that oh. voicemail? Ugh, you're going to feel so bad. So yeah, they get to make calls all afternoon. And then um around four o'clock, they get their last meal. Now, when I was there, they used to get to select a last meal and it could be anything where the ingredients were at the prison unit. So like they were not allowed to cook, like they couldn't say, I want a lobster or filet mignon or something like that. <laughs> it couldn't be that, but a lot, like the most requested meal was a cheeseburger you know, and they made amazing cheeseburgers. Um, The other was like, it was a lot of like comfort foods, you know, it was stuff like um breakfast foods and things like that, that, and it was actually really, really good.
2: What would be your choice?
0: Mac and cheese.
2: It would just be mac and oh, cheese. Oh, like, look,
0: like you're like, oh, I'm not seeing you've thought about this and I had, like cut you off. <laughs> mac and cheese. Yeah, no, I've thought about it, obviously. And it would be macaroni and cheese and I would be delighted to have it. Yes, because their mac and cheese is the bomb.
1: What about you, Tom? Well, before Michelle said that you had to have it, the ingredients at the prison, I was thinking that I would just try and postpone it by going, look, I want a taster menu from El Bully. So <laughs> I want 27 different courses. You've got to get it from Madrid. Um, <laughs> but then, I, I don't know if, you know, sometimes this is a ridiculous analogy and it's stupid and I apologise for it. But you know that feeling when you've got to, just got to get on with something and you're procrastinating. Like if I go swimming and it's cold and I can't, I don't really want to get in. Sometimes you just have to just get in I could see myself going, look, my life's going to win. I'm not bothered about a meal. Just crack on with it. Like, my life's over.
2: I'm not sure, Tom. Like, I really, really like you. I respect you professionally um, and personally. I think we're really building a friendship. But I'm not entirely sure how you've made a comparison (laughs) of the swimming pool being
1: too cold to your last moments on this planet. So, would you have a big meal? Uh, (laughs) Uh, would you keep eating like your mac and cheese Michelle
0: oh no I don't think I'd be able to eat it I would ask for it but like when I get nervous I get super queasy I don't think I'd actually be able to eat it but I'd ask for it
2: no I'm, I'm smashing my meal I'm sitting there and I've thought long and hard about my last meal I'm going for coleslaw
0: who the fuck chooses coleslaw? Like, that is, like, seriously, like, the armpit of, like, foods. Like, nobody likes coleslaw. I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't mean to clown on you, but okay, no.
2: Okay, okay. I, I can't remember um, <laughs> slagging off your mac and cheese.
0: Oh, because everyone loves mac and cheese. Well,
1: I love coleslaw. Hmm. It's amazing <laughs> that Joe's, Joe's last minutes on death row in Texas are going to be an argument with Michelle about <laughs> coleslaw. <laughs> Okay. My starter would be <laughs> coleslaw.
0: Can't wait to hear what the entrees
2: <laughs> Or a prawn cocktail, depending on what ingredients you've got at the prison. I'd have my main as uh, a Chinese takeaway. Mm. Um, so like loads of different dishes like chow mein you know deep fried prawns i like a squid delight we get squid delight from our local walk-in they're Mm. lovely there anyway and i'd have a side of buffalo wings hot buffalo wings with the cheese sauce and maybe a couple of celery sticks because they're good for calories and stuff um (laughs) and then i'm gonna finish it off with uh, a banoffee pie do you think they could do that for me? Any of that? No, lot?
0: what you're going to get, you'll get the coleslaw and then you're gonna get a fish square is what's gonna happen because you asked Fish for Square? Because se- <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you asked for seafood and I love how optimistic and hopeful you are about the prawns and all of that i think it's adorable i do but you're gonna get a fish square because you have asked for some ridiculous things that are not gonna be at a prison like do you think they have like a prawn order no okay
2: just to clarify this was all hypothetical i don't intend on uh, murdering someone and stealing their wallet in the state of texas
1: even if they only did a fish square could they do like a szechuan fish square so at least it's a bit closer to joe's chinese
0: you know what i think that probably could be arranged i'll see what i could do oh no no
2: no no! (laughs) this is is still not gonna happen guys don't put any plans in place never
0: say never oh wow never say never
1: right michelle if you could look into that szechuan option we are going to have some more serious stuff in a moment but first let's have a few ads hello i'm Garrett thomas and i'm tom fordice and this is your official invite to come and join our brand new cycling club. Now, good news, it's a podcast too. So you can come and listen to us, try and build this club from scratch. And we'll have a few familiar faces joining us for the ride too. Right, G, time to tell everyone what we've called this club. Well, we thought long and hard about this. So we come up with a strong original name that really stands out. The Gareth Thomas Cycling Club. Yeah, I suppose it's easy to remember at least, isn't it? We will have new episodes for you every single Tuesday. Come and join us. Those were the ads. I've got a bit of a feeling this is going to get dark now. Joe, do you want to lead us off? Okay. Now I know we've gotten a little bit, um, you know, lighthearted, which is
2: good to do when stuff gets a little bit heavy and that. But the crux of it is you've been there when someone's life is just ended. You've seen into an inmate's eyes when the life has just left them. Now that's pretty dark that's as dark as it can get to be honest like what what does it look like what i'm not asking for in a sadistic way i'm asking what is that actual feeling that you can describe to us
0: you know it's changed a little bit when when i was witnessing texas was using a three drug method and so it was very very fast you know, the, the first drug was administered and it was a sedative, but it was a lethal dose. So it would put the, the inmate to sleep. And then the second drug was administered, and it was a lethal muscle relaxant. So that's usually when it it would collapse the lungs and diaphragm. So whenever you read reports about that they would gasp or sputter or cough, that's when that second drug was hitting. And then the third drug was one that was designed to stop the heart. So these drugs are administered over the course of like two minutes, two and a half minutes. So, I mean, the, the process is very, very fast, you know, not to be too graphic or anything, but what I used to hate is they would change color very quickly, very, very quickly in some cases. So, um, you know, depending on what their natural pallor was, um, they would turn purple really quickly. And that was hard to watch because protocol was that after those drugs are administered over that two to three minutes, we would wait like another four to five minutes and then they would summon a doctor to come in and pronounce the person dead. And those would be just the longest five minutes of your life because you're truly sitting there watching a dead body change color waiting for this. And it's like those five minutes would seem like 50, you know, it just, it would go by so slowly. So that would be the part that, that was hard to watch, you know?
2: (sighs) Wow. Mm. Um, dark i'm trying to picture tom what the feeling is in the build-up because all i've got in my head is um is green mile they're setting out the chairs in that little room and you've got the electric chair at the front of it and all the families are slowly gathering in and thinking to witness it and stuff like that and now that's clearly not how it is now But what's the sort of atmosphere like in the room for those witnesses? Is there a lot of witnesses that turn up? Are there a lot of the victims' families that turn up to watch it?
0: Almost always, I would say, the victim's family turns up. And there's almost always um, a group of of witnesses who turn up for the inmates. Sometimes it's family, but a lot of times they have um, pen pals and usually they're European. Um, So sometimes they have no family there and they'll just have like five European pen pals that are in there. So
1: hang on people correspond with them when they're in prison and then come to see their death.
0: There are some men who I think have more prolific love life since getting on death row than they ever had on the outside.
1: What is going on there?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the European women love the men on Texas death row and frequently marry them. And like, yeah, they come and like live over here and get houses and things like that. And their job is like professionally, they are a death row wife. It's a whole other thing you should explore, (laughs) yes. Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: Joe, we've uncovered some weird things in the course of doing this podcast. That is the single weirdest thing.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: You would marry someone on death row who's committed a horrific, violent crime, move your life to a different continent. What?
0: I interviewed a woman about it once. Her thing was this. like, She had always been in abusive relationships and all of that. Her thing was it was kind of the perfect scenario in that you're never going to touch them in person. Um, you know where they are all the time. They pay all this attention to you. And yeah, it was it was something.
2: Surely there's better options on Tinder or Plenty of Fish or what's an American dating site?
0: Bumble, stuff like oh, that. Oh, Bumble's
2: in America, is it?
0: I think they're, yeah, I think they're pretty international, yeah.
2: Okay, surely there's better options out there than death
1: row inmates. Well, you've
0: obviously been out of the dating game a while, haven't you? <laughs> doesn't
1: say a great deal for the dating scene that if you're on death row, you've got a better chance than someone who isn't.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) What are the things that are actually in the injection?
0: Um, Well, and again, they've now gone to a one-drug method. And I don't follow it, um, so I can't tell you what the one-drug was. You know, at the time that I watched, and let me see if I can remember, it was sodium thiopenthal, pancuronium bromide, and potassium chloride.
1: Is the injection automatic or is there someone whose job it is to put a syringe into someone's arm and then press the plunger
0: it is not automatic yeah there's someone whose job it was and on the other side of the inmate's body is a glass window that's one-way glass so you cannot see in that glass but the people behind that glass can see out they can see into that room from the other side that's where the iv team is and those are the people that actually come out and put the the iv lines in place and those are the people that are pushing the drugs. So when I watch it from that room, I see the entire process. So I watch the inmate actually walk into the room and it completely, for lack of any better way of saying it, completely just fucked up everything I thought. Because one thing that people may not realize is that when the inmate walks in from the holding cell, they are completely unrestrained. So if three 300 executions, there were maybe three or four times that the inmate fought. So all those guys, they never fought. They just walked in completely unrestrained of their own volition. So watching it those two times and watching a man walk into the room, knowing he's about to die with no restraints on, and they have this little step stool next to the gurney. So it's like a two-step stool. He steps up on on the stool and just lays back and puts his arms out. The warden stands at the inmate's head, and there's a chaplain that stands at his feet. And the IV team comes in, and they start working on his arms. You know, they're doing the alcohol swabs, and they're talking to him. And at the same time, it's called the tie-down team. So it's five men and their job is their straps and that's how you're attached to the gurney so that you can't get off. So there's one for each arm and one for each leg and then one that goes across or two that go across your body so that they strap you to the gurney, but they're not fighting. They just lay there and put their arms out and they strap you down and then the IV team is doing all their stuff. Watching all of that and how resigned this person was to dying completely messed with my head and I hated seeing all of that. It just... I could not wrap my mind around it. And so anyway, so I watched the IV team and how they did it and stuff. And they've got a tray and um, there's one person that hands the the drugs to the person that's pushing it because the IV lines run through a tiny window. So you never see who the executioners are. No one knows their identities or anything. I saw because I was there, you know, but I, I would never say who they are and um, they push the drugs. And so they know they're doing it and the drugs are pushed and, then it's over. Is
2: it the same amount of drug no matter what size you are or do you have to actually give a bigger... So if Tom's on the gurney, I'm giving him like a teaspoon. I'm actually a little bit bigger than Tom. Are you giving me like more or
1: is it just flat? It's just a flat. It's going to do it.
0: It's flat, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's interesting that they decide to use an alcohol swab on their arm before they put the injection in. It's just, yeah, they're they're worried about an that. infection. Are you worried about
0: infection? Yeah, it's still a protocol. Yeah, a lot of people have asked about that. They're like, does it really matter? Yeah, it's, it's still a protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they don't reuse the same needle every time. Yeah, no, it's, yeah.
1: The lethal injection, the way you've described it, it still sounds pretty horrific. In my mind, it was always the least horrific option. But Texas used to have something called Old Sparky. Yes. Joe. So see if you can guess what Old Sparky is. There was an Old Sparky at Chessington that was in front of
2: um, the vampire ride. you paid like a pound or two and you'd sit in it and it'd give you like a little shock on your, your hands and that. I'm guessing it's something to do with the, the electric chair, is it?
0: It is indeed the electric chair. Yes, that is what Texas used until... The Supreme Court declared that capital punishment was cruel and unusual. And then, when Texas resumed capital punishment, they came back with lethal injection. But in some states, and, and again, I haven't worked in the death penalty arena since 2012 but at that time some states still allowed you to select how you were going to be executed and at that time yeah and and you know google this but at that time if i recall in utah you could still elect to be um executed by firing squad uh
1: what i mean what about you joe what have you i'm gonna give you the three options i'm gonna give you old sparky firing squad lethal injection i'm gonna give you four options a another you can select another way to go like if you want to be eaten by a tiger or something like
2: That's ludicrous. Although actually that might be good because you're kind of a circle of life. You're providing a meal for someone else. I don't know. They say people talk about drowning, don't they? That that's probably the best way because it's euphoric. And I've always questioned that because how the fuck do you know it's euphoric if you've not? Like Who's told you that?
0: But that's what they say lethal injection is like.
2: What, euphoric?
0: They say it's like drowning.
2: Because your lungs collapse and then just fill with...
0: Yeah, like that's how the the chaplain used to describe it, that it's like there's like a wave that's taking you under. When that second drug, they would tell them when that second drug is taking effect, not to fight it, to let it just pull you under, because if you try and fight it, then that's when um, you gasp and all of that, don't fight it.
2: So a lot of the inmates, their final moments, what end of the spectrum, do most of them... Uh, show remorse and ask for forgiveness and are really upset and crying about it or most of them they don't give a shit and they're actually quite shitty about it
0: i would say very few were shitty about it i saw some of the most beautiful sincere apologies and i mean not just to the victim's families, but to their own families for what they had put them through. You know, I saw some really amazing, sincere apologies. Um, I saw a handful of really angry, ugly statements that were, I mean, just heinous. So there was one night in 2000 where a judge from one county and a judge from a totally different county both set executions for the same night. So we had to carry out two executions. And so they were back to back, which was just wild. And so that particular night, the, the way they did it was who, which, which order came in first? It wasn't alphabetical or anything. It was which order came in first. So the guy that was first gave the ugliest statement and basically told the victim's family a whole bunch of stuff about how, you know, basically, I hope you die in a car wreck on the way home and just said all this really hateful stuff. Um, but then by contrast, the guy who was executed next was crying and, and apologetic. And I'm so sorry I did this to you and then apologized to his family. So, I mean, having them back to back like that really set off this contrast in in their statement. Um, there were a couple that made jokes, you know, a couple that didn't speak at all. You know, so it really, it was just so, so varied. And you never knew until it was time. You know, even if they told you in the afternoon, this is what I plan on doing, it could change. You never knew. Do you look
2: back on your time doing your job and go, if I hadn't have done that job, I wouldn't be who I am now. And you regret that. Or do you look back at it and you're grateful for for those experiences and the perspective it's given you because there's some pretty dark experiences you've gone through.
0: You know, just personality wise, I'm not one of those people that lives with a lot of regret. Would it have been better if I hadn't have been around that much death? Yes. I think that the thing that that job, it took from me a lot of peace of mind. You know, I think about crazy shit that probably nobody else except maybe cops and such think about. I think about safety in a way that I don't think a lot of people do and worry about my child in a way that people probably normally don't, you know, and things like that. Um, I'm security minded in a different way, but that's not a unique experience. Again, I'm sure a lot of law enforcement people and people who work for the prisons in general think that way, but that's not necessarily all a bad thing that I'm diligent about locking my doors. I don't think that's all bad.
1: Do you ever have nightmares, Michelle? No. About what you saw?
0: No. The only dream that I've ever had about the executions was, I was very close with my grandmother, and I had a dream that she was like a black widow, you know? I don't know if you have that term over there, but a woman who basically kills all of her husbands. What? Um, yeah. Do you not have that phrase over there, black widow? Black widow? Yeah. Do we? Like a spider, you know. I, th- I
2: genuinely thought that was just a spider, Tom. Do we call people that kill their husbands black widows? Isn't it
1: a Tori Amos song? Who's Tori Amos? Oh, God. That's a question for another time jack. <laughs>
0: This is disappointing. Sorry. Um, so anyway, she was like a black widow, which, so a woman who kills her husbands and she, she was being executed. And in the dream, um, I was so upset because here my beloved grandmother or Nan is being executed and I'm not allowed to show any emotion because I was also the spokesperson. Um, when I woke up, I told her about it. She thought it was the funniest thing ever that she was killing her husbands. Because she probably wanted to. Um, So (laughs) anyway, that's really the only dream I ever had. And and, I mean, I don't think it would take, you know, a dream expert to get what that's about. (laughs) You know, that, you know, that was the exact pull that I felt that, you know, I had emotions and wasn't really allowed to give in to any of them and was worried all the time about being professional.
2: Do you think you'll ever get over what you've seen? Or they're just part of you now?
0: I think they're part of me, but not in a way that, I mean... I think I'm a resilient girl, you know, and I think that they're part of who I am, but not in a way that I don't, I'm not a dark person, you know, I don't live my life that way. It doesn't affect my personality and stuff. And honestly, too, working on the book helped a tremendous amount because what was hard for me when I left was that I prevented myself from thinking about him too much because I knew that that was a dangerous road to go down. And so working on the book and having to go through these different files kind of forced me to put it away in a neat fashion. And that helped me move on from it a lot. You know,
2: hang on. Is there a plane somewhere?
0: I think a giant truck was driving by (laughs) outside of my house. These are good mics. Wow. Apparently but
2: my tummy was rumbling as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You were thinking of that coleslaw.
2: Oh, what I'd give for that coleslaw. I'm just interested in (laughs) that mac and cheese. What's in that prison mac and cheese?
0: I don't know if I want to know, (laughs) to be honest. I'm just going to. It's not a
2: special recipe. It's not going to be high quality.
0: Oh no, actually it's really good. And there used to be one inmate and his whole job in the, in the prison was to prepare all the last meals. So he made his mac and cheese, his famous mac and cheese and it was amazing so we all got to eat it so that's how i know how good the last meal mac and cheese is okay and it's that good yeah so like i'm not just throwing it out there i've had had it it. and it is good yes and i didn't even have yeah i didn't even have to be executed yeah i had it
1: (laughs) that is an amazing job that there is some prisoner who's done something pretty bad but not you know nicking a wallet at the same time
0: he has a book
1: what is it a recipe book
0: yes (laughs) Yeah, now here's the bad thing. So the names of the the recipes are, are very tongue in cheek, but um yeah, his name is Brian Price.
2: Wow. I'm Brian going to Price. look at Brian Price recipe. And it's called book.
0: meals <laughs> meals to die for.
2: No, it's not. <laughs> oh no, the the what? puns continue. I don't feel comfortable um Promoting an inmate's I know. book, to be honest. Well, he's
0: out. No, no, no. He's oh, out
2: okay. Maybe, he's yeah, out. maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Let's go yeah. down the rehabilitation route. Actually, yes. it is a good idea.
1: Yes. Let's help yes. out Brian Price. He's changed his life yes. around. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. Uh, Joe, when we're allowed to get back together, yeah, I think we should cook each other. A prison mac and cheese, yeah?
0: I would love that. When I get to come back to London, I'm coming over for that. Okay, so, yeah.
2: we'll have a mac and cheese party and <laughs> coleslaw on the, sli- on the side.
0: No, I'm not coming. Oh, so. okay. No, I'm just no, kidding. No, I'm coming, No, yay! fuck
2: you. You've had your chance. <laughs> You've done. <laughs> Michelle, what do you do now?
0: Uh, I work at a law firm. I work in marketing. <laughs>
2: Do you see anyone die there?
0: I see people who want to die sometimes, but no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, no. It's a great job. I, I absolutely love it.
1: Good. It's completely different to... Completely.
0: Uh, Much nicer offices. Good. And yeah.
1: What's the mac and cheese like?
0: <laughs> Damn it. I haven't got any mac and cheese. I, I find that upsetting. That's a drawback. You
1: need to speak to HR
2: about that.
0: I, you know what it's, it's on my evaluation
2: it's been amazing having you on your book thank you've got you. a book out haven't you final I
0: do Death Row The Final Minutes
2: I think I've got halfway through that on my audio book
0: yay
2: thank you so much for coming on Michelle thank you for giving us an insight
0: yes thank you for having me
2: thanks Michelle
0: thank you
1: so we've we've been to some weird places and some fascinating places on this podcast nowhere as dark as that
2: yeah that was pretty dark I was a little bit worried coming into it that it would be too dark to actually talk about but on the back of it i feel much more educated and
1: i think i have a slightly different view on capital punishment
2: now than i did before
1: but this is the point in the show joe where we recommend another podcast for our listeners this week i'm going to talk about the geraint thomas cycling club inside the world of cycling how to climb how to sprint how to take one of those little gels out of your back pocket and eat it without dropping it Brought to you by crowd's latest signing, Tour de France champion, Geraint Thomas. All you got to do is search for the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Right, come on then. Who's on next week? Joe, on next week's show, we have a cheesemonger, a monger of cheese. Ooh, stinky. What does the monger bit mean? Forge. So
2: it's uh, it's Latin for forge. So you know how you get iron mongers, cheesemongers, fish mongers, meat mongers... Um, monks <laughs> why aren't butchers called meat mongers it's just not as catchy and you can't then say the cockney gears of butchers butchers hook look could a bookshop
1: be a uh, bookmongers
2: no they don't forge books there do they books are forged in the mind of the artist why are we still talking why are we still talking we're finished aren't we we're finished
1: crowd network a place where you belong Podcast Network.